It's wonderful to be uh, here in this place and to receive the ministry we've been receiving in these days. Uh, I would like for you to turn to uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 1. We want to read this same section we read last night where John saw the vision of the Son of Man in glory standing among the lampstands, ministering to his church. Revelation, chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And then let's turn to the book of Zechariah and chapter 4, where there's a similar vision. Zechariah chapter 4. And let's read the, the whole chapter. Zechariah chapter 4. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold, a lampstand all of gold with its bowl on the top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right and of the bowl and the other on the left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who was speaking with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. 
And then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Also the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered the second time and said to him, What are these two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? And so he answered me saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord. Of the whole earth. And then just a few verses, if we could, from Ephesians in chapter 1. Ephesians in chapter 1. And uh, a few verses from verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? We'll stop at that point. And let's just have another moment of prayer. Our Lord, we come before you to speak of things regarding the end times. We realize that without a spirit of wisdom and revelation... That, that we will not understand the things to be spoken. How we thank you that your plan has been a mystery through the ages, but as has been revealed through Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would open to us this plan as we come before you tonight. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this message in these days of your soon coming. And we want to be those who are waiting and who are watching and who are faithful. Lord, we ask that your spirit would not only teach us the truth of your word, but stir up our hearts with a deep longing for thy second coming. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Before we begin sharing on the topic tonight, as it were, I'd just like to share my uh, sort of wider burden. Uh, brothers and sisters, by the grace of God, I was saved in 1964. By some precious uh, uh, gospel, uh, by a precious gospel church, a denominational gospel church, who preached the gospel, and I got saved. 
And uh, probably greatly because of the influence of my father-in-law, who just recently passed away, I began to witness with him. He taught me how to witness. And uh, I don't know, I got kind of stoked up. And next thing you know, uh, while I was still in college, I started preaching a little bit. Uh, there were these little churches that uh, needed to fill-ins, you know. And the next thing you know, I felt some kind of call on my life to be a minister. And so went to seminary after college and uh, was ordained as a minister. And after being a minister, uh, I went out to serve uh, in these churches and also became a missionary, as it were. And was serving and was preaching, was reading the Bible and was testifying about who Jesus was uh, as best I could as one who loved the Lord. And it was almost 10 years as a Christian and six or seven as a minister before I had any idea of God's eternal purpose. I had no idea what the testimony of Jesus was all about. And not knowing these things, I unwittingly did some good things and did some bad things. You know, when you don't know God's plan and God's way, you pretty much work out your own way. And I had a way that used all the wits and humor and manipulation I could possibly do to build the church. But I'm very thankful for brothers and sisters that I met that led me to that fateful year. It was 1975. I came to my first Christian family conference in Richmond. And I heard things that I had never heard before. But it changed my life. And gave me an understanding, at least in some small way, and a desire to be one who is part of God's work and recovery and purpose in these last days. So that that moment that comes that our brother talked about so uh, wonderfully this morning, very soon. Some will be snatched from the earth. There's really nothing more that needs to happen before that day. And there was something in my heart, despite uh, my failings and, and many, well, just who I was. Still, there's something rose in my heart that made me want to be one of those who would be ready for that great snatching away. I didn't even know about this thing, this rapture. Just uh, That's another thing. I, I can't tell you about all the things I don't know. It would have taken me too long. But what I do want to share with you, and the reason that I'm speaking uh, tonight is this. I do believe that if we are to be in sync with what the Lord is doing in these last days, we must have revelation. And so last night I tried to share something of the revelation of the testimony of Jesus. And tonight I want to share on this revelation of the recovery work of the church in these last days. Now the reason I, I, I'm going to stress this matter of revelation, even as I did last night, is that I, I believe that it is the necessity of this revelation 
that also becomes the release of grace to begin to move in that vision. In other words, we have to see before we can go that way. And we're gathered here tonight, and I, I'm sure that almost everybody in here could truly say without apology that you love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Otherwise, well, I don't know why you would be here. These are awfully long lectures for somebody not interested. But I, uh, I believe that you are here because you love the Lord. But I always have the burden when I look over such a vast group like this, that there may be a, a number of people in this place who were just like me for those first ten years of my Christian life, and I had no idea of these matters of revelation until somebody showed me these things. And that's why I, I have this desire to share on the matter of the revelation of this recovery work of the church. And I hope the prayer in your heart, if you're just one of those Christians who are like I was, as I was saying in those early days, I was just so glad I was saved and I was preaching and knew I was going to live a happy life. I had a good wife, a bunch of kids. I had a car. I mean, what else do you need? I was sure I just, life was going to get better and better. And, and I had a hard time understanding the trouble I was going through. When I went through, I didn't know the Lord had to sanctify me and do all this. We didn't use the word sanctification. Uh, we were just talking in the back in the prayer time before here. And one brother said that, uh, Brother Tozer, this wonderful uh, prophet and speaker of the 20th century, uh, he had a book, and in one of the chapters of the book, which is in the bookstore, by the way, and now I guess that'll be flooded, Mac. Uh, everybody will try to get this book. One of the, first, uh, one of the chapters in it is uh, uh, The Remnant, Strange Teaching. Uh, so when Mac saw that, he said, oh, I better open that up because maybe uh, he's got some strange idea about The Remnant. But he just said, The Remnant has become a strange teaching to the vast Christianity. They have no idea about the remnant. Brothers and sisters, I just make a statement for you. If, if you're not part of the remnant, if you're not part of those who see what the Lord is really after, then that snatching moment may find you unawares. Now again, I'm not trying to scare anybody. And it's not even the basis of how much knowledge you know. It's how you're walking before the Lord. And you can be a young Christian and be 100% for the Lord. And you'll be snatched away, I'm convinced. But you can be a long time in the Lord. But if we don't know what He's doing today, we might find that we're on a, really out of step with His plan for His people. Now, when we share these things, these great matters, and as I'll share tonight on the Lord recovering His church in the last days, we immediately enter into some things that need revelation. And one of the great revelations that we must lay hold of is the fact that the Lord is in sovereign control of history, of His church, and of all things. This purpose that he has planned 
As we read before, one of the brothers read the other day, in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, that in the fullness of times he may sum up all things together in Christ. The machinery has begun of gathering all things under Christ in heaven and earth. Those of you who know Romans 8.28 and quote it all the time, sometimes in the slang, it's all good, which is not what it's saying at all, are aware that the very next verse says, for whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You are in a conforming process right now. There are, there's a moving beyond even our understanding in the depths of our lives. The Holy Spirit in His tremendous working, working all things, compressing all things under the headship of Christ even as we speak. It's toward God's purpose and His final end. It's toward that new Jerusalem that we heard about spoken before us. Do you know that's going on? When I finally began to see some of these things, it suddenly started to make sense of the problems that were coming about in my life. The Lord wasn't as concerned with my comfort as he was with my character. And so he was working on me and giving me a hard time in order to sanctify me and, and shed from me some things that needed to go. But one of the revelations, I suppose, we might say, which often is missing, I think, in the house of God is this. The Lord is absolutely sovereign and he has determined to do his will and he is going to do his will. So he will have a bride for his son. He has determined that the latter glory will be greater than the former glory. He has determined to recover whatever has been lost beyond just taking it back to its original and heightening the recovery by so much more the measure of Christ and his mercy being found in these things. Whether it's Israel that he's going to recover, or the church that he's going to recover, the kingdom that he's going to recover, or creation that he's going to recover, in his recovery, he has decided to recover these things and make them better than it was in the original. By the fact that his son will be so much more intrinsically involved in all of these things. He will have a church that holds the testimony of Jesus. And will hold the testimony of Jesus on this earth in every age as a testimony of the defeat of Satan. He has decided to use redeemed, imperfect human beings as part of this plan that he has. We wonder... Why on earth God would use us to accomplish something so vast, so perfect, so wonderful. The Lord is sovereign. He has determined. He will do it. And this is the challenge that meets us today. Because as we look at the church today, I don't know how you want to define it. Some people uh, seem so glib about it as if the way the church is is okay well I don't know whose uh, definition of the church you hold but I, I just know this that people who really love the Lord 
feel that the church has really fallen into great confusion. Not to go into all the doctrines lost, or even worse, the reality that's been lost, just taking one bit, the oneness of the church. Is it's in such division today that many people who really love the Lord say the church is in ruin. And it's not as though the Lord didn't tell us these things. Even in his parables of the kingdom, he spoke to us of the fact that the kingdom, as it appeared on earth, would start out looking good, but then things like the leaven of our flesh... And the power of human uh, machinations and kingdom building would come in and distort the kingdom. The tares would come in among the wheat and cause things outwardly to fall into disarray and into confusion and into compromise. Become cold. So when we look at the church today, we have to decide... What the Lord wants to do about it. We need to understand what he's planning to do about it. Otherwise we, I don't know, I suppose many people just kind of give up on it. They just say, oh, well, I'll just go to some church that's nearby where somebody's preaching pretty good and they have good music. That's good enough for me. But many of those who really love the Lord, there were many brethren, many people who searched the scriptures and they were disheartened by the ruin of the church. There's the low decline that was seen in the church. When you read in the book of Revelation, those seven churches, you sense some aspects of compromise and some aspects of the world having come into the church that's absolutely devastating to anything that could be called the testimony of the Lord. Well, if you are of the opinion that the church is in ruin, I think you have a valid point. But if we say that the church is in ruin and it's beyond recovery, then I think we are those who don't know either the scriptures or the power of God. Our, our Lord does not call on a remnant to be faithful when it's all in vain. Our Lord does not promise those who are faithful a reward and be telling a lie. Our Lord does not waste time going to the church of Ephesus after a whole generation had passed and they'd fallen from some of that original life that they had if he thought it was beyond repair and beyond recovery. Our sovereign God is on the throne. And when he determines to recover his church and have a testimony of Jesus upon this earth, he will do it. When we talk about these things, we are talking about matters of revelation. To believe, I think, in the recovery of the Lord's testimony in this last day, when we see the present state of things, or even the state of things in our own lives... We need to see a revelation of the sovereignty of God. He has spoken it, and he will do it. Now that brings us to where we were last night when I said I wanted to share a vision of recovery, even as we saw it there in the book of Revelation. 
That is to say, John, there in exile on the Isle of Patmos, and there before him he saw a vision of recovery that gave him a way forward. Because he saw before him a, a, a glorified Son of Man who was the priest ministering to his church with absolute confidence in his own ability to bring that church into full brideship and readiness. We saw that there was in that vision of, of John, not only the Lord glorious before him, but the, the church as seven golden lampstands. And he saw some spiritual reality of the church that perhaps he'd lost sight of in the midst of the observance of the church as it was seen so clearly outwardly. Golden churches worthy of the priesthood of the Son of God. And thirdly, he saw in the right hand of the Son of Man these uh, angels who were in his hands laid hold of by the Lord in order to speak those prophetic messages and pass on the burden of the Lord to these various churches. And so I want to look at these three aspects of this vision. You understand? Uh, the lampstand, the Son of Man in glory, and the angels. In hopes that we can see something of this revelation as John saw it. Now, first we come to the golden lampstands that encircled the Son of Man. Because we realize, as we read there in Revelation chapter 1, as he turned behind him to hear, to see the voice that was speaking to him, the very first thing he saw were the seven lampstands. And he saw that they were encircling this glorious Son of Man. And so first we have to deal with this uh, golden lampstands, these seven lampstands that he saw. Now, as soon as John saw that, now remember, John saw this vision himself of Jesus Christ. And we know as soon as John saw this vision, that he must have remembered the vision of Zechariah because of the similarity of the context. You see, Zechariah also had a vision of a lampstand. And it came in a time of recovery of the house of God. So there's a connection there. There's something there that uh, applies. So let's look at that Zechariah's vision of the lampstand for just a minute. You know the situation. Zechariah was a young prophet. And he came back with the remnant that returned from Babylon to build the house of God, specifically to do that. When they returned, these people who sacrificed everything to come back to Jerusalem and build the house of God, with all the resources they could, with all the faith they could, with all the determination they could, they first built an altar and sacrificed and then they, by the grace of God, built the foundation for what would become the house of God. But as soon as the foundation was completed, they were absolutely stopped by the enemy. By edicts from the hostile surrounding neighbors 
who sent command to the uh, king and the king sent back command and the work ceased. And the people of God were in this dilemma. What are we going to do? Our whole reason for coming back to Jerusalem was to build the house of God and now we can't build it. The government won't allow us to build it. What are we going to do? And in this stage, they stopped building. They started building their own homes. They started tilling their own fields because they just didn't know what to do. Zechariah was one of them. And also had this burden. What do we do? We came to recover the house of God. How do we do it? What do we do? We need understanding. We need revelation. We need a lampstand. Because, of course, lampstand always speaks of that light, that revelation. Understanding our way forward. Zechariah is asking this question. What should we do, Lord? What can we do? And then he saw the revelation. He saw the revelation of that lampstand and the two trees and the angel standing by to explain what was going on. And of course, he knew what the lampstand was. He, he knew what olive trees were, but he didn't know what it meant. So he kept saying, Lord, what do these mean? And this angel kept saying, you don't know what it means? <laughs> but you know, <laughs> sometimes uh, we're a little spiritual dense. And Zechariah saw it, but he couldn't make any sense of it. And so the angel said, okay, I'll tell you what it means. And now I'm going to tell you what I, what, what I think the angel was saying. So you can get a double translation here. Out of Hebrew and into Kongdenology. <laughs> but basically the angel said, don't you see what this is? This is the testimony of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel has begun the work. Zerubbabel is going to finish the work. And there's no mountain that can stop it. What a testimony. What Zerubbabel begins, he will complete. The top stone will be put with grace, grace to it. Oh mountain, what are you? You're nothing before Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel started, Zerubbabel will finish. But it will be done. Not by might, nor by power. Zerubbabel won't put on his royal robes or put on some kind of a, fix up some kind of a small army to go and attack Persia. No, not by might nor by power, by my spirit, says the Lord, which by interpretation means in the sort of secret place, I'm going to give a sense of enabling to the saints. I'm going to give them spiritual courage. I'm going to give them a, a spiritual energizing. And they're just going to begin to build. And they will build by the working of the Spirit in their lives. And so it was. Oh, the testimony of Zerubbabel. And as soon as Zechariah spoke those words... The people were encouraged and they said they began to build because of the word of God. Isn't that wonderful? Ah, now I understand. That lampstand, I see what this means. It's the testimony of Zerubbabel. Now, uh, just we'll leave it at that. I, I'm sure uh, others could say so much more, but let's just uh, go back to John. Because now there's John on the Isle of Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I have to believe that our dear brother is also burdened. 
Because as he's on the aisle, he knows, perhaps he even receives reports of problems, declensions, divisions in the churches there in Asia Minor. With his own spiritual perception, he has sensed the decline and he has probably spoken to it while he was there in Asia Minor. But now he's on the Isle of Patmos. Increasing the problems is not only that he's out of the picture, but the other apostles of the original twelve and those who were there at the beginning have all pretty much died off. And who will carry on this whole work? And besides that, the, the persecutions are becoming more and more severe. And I believe in the same sort of way John was before the Lord, saying, Lord, how do we go forward? How does the recovery go forward? How can your uh, testimony remain among the saints in this very difficult, difficult time? And then he turned and saw the testimony of Jesus. He saw those seven golden lampstands and he saw the Son of Man standing in the middle. And I don't know if, if we can understand without having seen this revelation ourselves. But when he saw Jesus as he, as he had never seen him before, full of glory, full of confidence, full of power, he spoke and his mouth came, the words came forth like rolling waters, a sharp two-edged sword. His eyes were burning with fire. Oh, this, this was not just Jesus meek and mild. This was more than Jesus, Lamb of God. This was Jesus, all-powerful Lord of Lord and King of Kings. Now, when he saw Jesus standing in the midst of the golden lampstands, he saw Jesus will recover his church. Now, I know that may sound very simple. But men usually think they're responsible for it. If the church is going to be built, if we're going to handle the problems, okay, men, time for one of those grueling men's meetings. Let's get together. Let's try to do this thing. Let's try to figure it out. But no, there he saw the lampstands and the Lord himself ministering among the lampstands. And I think if we don't take anything else away from that vision, can I tell you what I think? I think John really, well, fell down dead. But in another sense, John let go of all the worry. When you see that the church is in the Lord's hands, you let go of all the worry. And then in resurrection life, you just do what you're told. Now there's many elders and brethren and workers really worried about what's going to happen. In these last days, people's hearts grow cold, declension, all of these kinds of things. And I say we need this revelation. Of a Lord of glory. Who is well able to handle, thank you, whatever needs to be done. But there we have first to deal with, before we get talking about the Lord, who is central in the whole thing. Is to look at this lampstand and ask ourselves, what, is these, what are these lampstands? 
in terms of the church. Because as Jesus, excuse me, as Jesus explained at the end of chapter 1 of Revelation, he said, as for the lampstands, these are the seven churches. Now we need to understand what this is talking about. How do you, let me preface by asking you, how do you see the church? What is your definition of the church? Well, by revelation, John understood that the church is a golden lampstand. That the church in Ephesus was a golden lampstand. All the way to the church in Laodicea. It was a golden lampstand. And he saw something, which, of course, he needed interpretation on, but what he saw was this. To God, the church in spiritual reality is a golden lampstand. Regardless of how you and I see it. Now let's talk about the Lord's definition for just a moment. See, because this is what the Lord says the church is. And if we see that, uh, we have to realize that here is this golden lampstand, seven of them, and each one of them holding the lamp of Jesus, the testimony of Jesus, as we spoke about last night. In these seven places, there were seven lamp, golden lampstands. And a lamp of the testimony of Jesus within it. Now let's look at that just for a moment. What does this mean, this golden lampstand? And how does that define the church? Well, we can define the church in many different ways. But the Lord, when it comes to recovery, is saying that the church is of the very character and nature of God. That is to say... It is the life of the Lord Jesus, the gold. That's the spiritual reality of the church. We may see wood, hay, stubble, other things. Do you know something? God sees the gold of the church. If you'll just uh, go back to uh, Exodus chapter 25, where the original lampstand was built for the uh, tabernacle. We just read uh, two verses here because it speaks of this character, this definition of the lampstand. If you'll turn to Exodus 25, verses 36 and 37, it just is a long description. I'm just taking a few verses here. As he's talking about the lampstands, their bulbs and their branches shall be of one piece and all of it shall be one piece of hammered work of pure gold. Then you shall make its lamps seven in number, and they shall mount its lamp so as to shed light on the space in front of it. Now, it just let me just make four comments about the description of the way the lamp was. The lamp was made, first of all, all of gold. That is what the spiritual reality of the church. What does that mean? The foundation of the church is Christ. The head of the church is Christ. The body of the church 
is Christ. It's Christ in you and Christ in me. Stephen has a very complicated mathematical formula. I'm not even going to go into it. But just to say that the church from from the bottom to the top is Christ. It's Christ's life in you and I. That is the church as God sees it. We were formed out of Christ. As our brother shared this morning, as the water and the blood came out of his side. That's what the church is. It's all of gold. Do do you hear any wood in there? Is there any hay or stubble in there? All of gold. That's the vision of the church that John saw. And it was furthermore all of one piece. Now I... I've never seen a, an artisan who works in gold do something like this, but evidently, I mean, basically, they took a bullion of gold and a little ball-peen hammer and different pieces of equipment and started banging that thing out, out of one piece of gold, not 19, and they soldered it together. Don't you see the church? It is absolutely one. There is no division in the spiritual reality of the church. It's made of one piece, out of one life, bound together, united in spirit. One piece. Third, here is the Holy Spirit. It is hammered work. Now, now you and I can say, oh yeah, well that's us. But all it means is that the Holy Spirit knows how to take that bullion and shape it and bring it out and make these branches and, 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 and construct this whole thing by hammering and hammering and hammering. Now, he doesn't hammer hard because gold is malleable just like you. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Just like Christ in you. And so, he, so he's hammering, hammering. I wonder how long it would take to hammer something like that out. Oh, the skill of such an artisan. Well, the Holy Spirit has done exactly that. In Ephesus and Thyatira and Smyrna and Sardis, he has taken a lump, a single lump, Christ. Then he's hammering out by the Holy Spirit this beautiful lampstand. All of one piece. And then the fourth thing I'd mention about it is just that the branches were decorated with buds and the leaves of an almond, which is a sign of resurrection life. The whole thing speaks of resurrection life. And this is the church as it is seen and portrayed here. Well... Let's take it just another step further, because you see, we might say, okay, well, now this is like the spiritual reality up in heaven. No, it's not. It's the spiritual reality in Ephesus and in Smyrna and in Pergamum and in Thyatira. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Especially if we get down to the end and in Laodicea. Wait a minute, now wait. How could there be a golden lampstand in Laodicea? But you see, we're talking about a spiritual reality that necessitates us looking beyond just the outer thing, which we so often do. We're just stuck looking at the outward and we don't see the, the inward spiritual reality. Now, the reason I say all of that, it gets down to 
pretty simple thing. I do not believe that we can be shaped and hammered cooperatively with the Holy Spirit until we've seen the benchmark, the spiritual reality of what the church is. If you see the pattern, if you want to put it that way, if you see the reality, then we can be shaped into it. But if we don't know the reality of it, then we can be banged and twisted any kind of way. You know, by the time I got out of seminary, if you asked me about the church, I could have defined it theologically, I could have defined it ecclesiastically, I could have defined it metaphorically, I could have defined it pragmatically, I could have defined it doctrinally, I could have defined it theoretically, because I read Watchman Nee's Normal Christian Church Life. I could have defined the church in all those ways, but I'd never seen the church as God sees the church. That's what happened that fateful year of 1975. I came and heard the ministry here at Richmond and was working with the young people and all that kind of stuff. But I tell you what, I left the conference and went home. And then, by the grace of God, one day, I was reading my Bible and the Lord opened my eyes and I saw her. The most beautiful church. One glorious, in tune with her bridegroom, pure, functioning. I saw her, but actually, truth of the matter is, I saw him first. Because when you see him, you see her. I saw the glorious Lord. And uh, it, it actually took a psychosomatic toll on my life. I got sick for a while because of this. Because, you see, I, I was a... I don't, I don't want to go into too much of this or, because it sounds so negative. But, you know, I, I was a pastor. And by that, I mean I was the head of my church. And then when I saw the church... I was decapitated in a nanosecond. When I saw the glorious Lord, I mean, you know, I saw the Lord as it were ministering to his church and he loved to minister to his church. And he wasn't sweating like I always sweat. And he wasn't worried like I was, because he was in complete correspondence. The lampstand in him, they're absolutely one. He's trimming, he's, he's firing up, he's giving fuel. He's, he's talking about things, but you know what? There's love going back and forth because he's in control. And the lamp is responding and I saw the church like that. I'm telling you what, I got so spoiled. I got so spoiled. And I, I ended up resigning that little church and my ministry, as I had no idea that that was God's reality. I'd just been living in my reality. I, we had a, a, my church was a nice little my church. Interdenominational, we had some charismatics, some non-charismatics. They were Bible-oriented. We didn't have any name. We were just Christians. I did everything I possibly could to make my church a great imitation of his church. Except I was in control of it. 
Oh, I, I, so, well, I went through a process. Now, maybe some of you know, you know, I, it was at that time I wrote uh, this chorus. Some of you sing, you know, give us vision of the beauty of the Lord. You know, I, I just, I, I can't say I went through a tough time. I did, actually. But uh, I went through such a time of... Uh, uh, of realization, I don't know, it was such a time of grace, almost being caught up into heaven. I, I mean, actually, I saw something that was so pure, it took me a while to know how to work with reality again. You know, with the brothers and sisters who were not quite gold yet. <laughs> but you see, the, the, the thing of it is, uh, just to put it simply, I hope you can understand this. In that moment, God put me on the gold standard. Now, you know, here in the United States, we used to have a gold standard to our dollar. We had to have all the gold in Fort Knox to match the amount of currency we were producing. Now, our currency is based on imagination. <laughs> well, so the church by many is built on imagination. But if you see, and unless you see the gold standard, you're satisfied. But if you see the gold standard, you cannot be satisfied. Everything that we do has to move toward the gold standard or it will not last. No matter how creative, imaginative, uh, uh, novel, uh, whatever. Do we see the gold standard? That is the spiritual reality of the church. That's the revelation right there that the Lord's trying to recover. We can't recover if we don't know what we're recovering to. Once we see the gold standard, well, now the Lord looked at the church and what did he see? The gold standard. But you know he looked at the church with those fiery eyes. He saw every fault and everything in it, but he knew what to do because he saw what the reality was. And it's a question of us entering in. I, I, I just feel like that the, if the Lord can give us, I'm not asking you to have a holy dissatisfaction with the church. I'm asking you to have a revelation of the gold standard. And then our holy dissatisfaction with the church no longer becomes a blame thing. Where we blame denominations or blame this or we blame that person or that. Oh, no, no, no. When you see the gold standard, there's nobody to blame. You just fall down on your face and say, Lord, if you're going to shape me into that, then please speak to me by your spirit. So the golden, this wonderful, wonderful golden lampstand. But now, as I said, the second part of it, of course, is the glorious Lord standing in the midst because there's no gold lampstand without the Lord in the midst. And it's when the Lord's in the midst, you can see the gold lampstand. You know, when Paul saw his great heavenly vision on the road to Damascus, he didn't just see the Lord. He saw the Lord and the body of Christ. And it caught him. And we know from the Old Testament days, the principle is just the same. Because Abraham received the glory of God appeared to Abraham and sent him out. And Abraham went out and he went out looking for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Now, when did he see that city? When he saw his Lord. 
And as he went from place to place, whether it was in Egypt or whether it was in Shechem or whatever the situation may be, he had the gold standard. Well, no, 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 this isn't the, this isn't the city. This isn't the city. It doesn't have those foundations. Its maker and builder isn't God. You see, Abraham had a, a benchmark in his search, in his sojourn. And dear brother and sister, no matter how young or old you are in the Lord, I hope you come to a place where the Lord can open your eyes and with a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of your glorified Lord, you might see the church in all her beauty. What a beautiful church. And then to see the Lord there in the midst, all-powerful, working there in the lampstand. You know, I, 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 for me, it sort of happened this way. When I saw the church as the lampstand, to use that uh, picture. Nobody had to tell me to repent. It was so obvious. I think when the Lord has to tell his church to repent. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3. It's because they've lost some of that spiritual reality. As to who they are in Christ. And they were settling somehow for less. When we really, you know, when Jesus came to earth, he came to earth and bore testimony of God and bore testimony of man. You know, when Jesus walked around in the gospel of John, you see him walking. And as he encountered individuals, well, they did repent. But you know why? Because when they saw Jesus, they saw what a man was really to be like. Even the really hardened sinners. That woman at the well, when she saw Jesus, his purity, his compassion, his love, his self-giving love, she thought to herself immediately, that's the way a person should be. Not the way I am. Not bitter and, and full of hate and prejudice and, and guarded. And I, Look at that man. Look at me. That's all it takes to repent. All you've got to do is see Jesus as he really is. And you see what man is. And then we see what we're, we are doing. And we repent. You know, uh, <coughs> one day when I, before I got saved, just before I got saved, uh, I was reading the Gospel of Luke because I was going to a, a school where they required us to read the New Testament. I'd never read it before. And one day as I'm reading the Gospel of Luke, Jesus stepped off the page. And I saw Jesus, the Son of Man. And nobody had to tell me to repent. I only had to know that he had an interest in me. After I saw that day. My, my, how beautiful Jesus is. And when we see him, we repent. When we see our Lord is able to handle all things concerning the recovery of the church, well, we repent. Workers repent. Elders repent. Deacons repent. We got our hands mixed up in so much stuff that's actually a hindering the glorious church to come into being.
The Lord shows us, uh, us these things and we repent. We stand before the Lord a glory. What a glorious vision that is. Uh, we uh, really can't spend time uh, looking there in Revelation chapter 1, but we've read it so many times, and I know that you have seen the details of it. But I just want to say a few things. He came before John, and he said, John, stand up. This isn't a matter of you dying. It's a matter of you living in resurrection life. And now listen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Now, do you think I can complete what I started? John, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. John, I was dead and now I live and I live forevermore and I hold the keys of Hades and of death. Now, do you think Satan can prevent the recovery of the church to pure gold? I mean, what could John say? When you see the reality of this Jesus who is all-powerful, omniscient, omnipotent, loving, caring for his church, is there anything that can stop him? When you see his eyes of fire piercing and penetrating, able to see everything we try to hide, there is no hiding before our Lord. There's only, Lord, you found me out. And then taking the life of the Lord. And, and allowing the Lord to turn us into gold. The Lord was looking around. And, and as he looked around, he was ministering to the churches. And just the fact that he was walking in the midst is implying that he was busy. He was busy among the church. Looking, talking, examining. Well, we, we, we want to move on to the third one, the angels here. Uh, <coughs> because that's always a lot of fun. But before we do, one more thing. How do you think his fellow bondservants reacted? These who he says were fellow partakers in tribulation and the kingdom and perseverance. Fellow bondservants who hold the testimony of Jesus. When John saw this vision and wrote it down, I suppose he had to send it uh, over to Asia because he was still in uh, exile as far as I know. So he sent the, this uh, uh, revelation, this book of revelation as we call it. How do you think those, his fellow workers responded? Those bondservants. And I'm just going to define bondservant as anybody who really loves the Lord. And who's experienced tribulation and consolation. Had persevering faith. How do you think they responded? I believe there was shouts, praises, and glory and blessing. A renewed faith. A new vision. As John said, you know what I saw? And I turned and I saw. You got to remember, you see, you and I, is la, la, la. This is a book that's been around for a long time with a black cover. But when it was first sent to these guys, they'd never heard this before. And John says, you know, you know, Jesus, who I knew all of my life, dear brothers and sisters, I saw him in a new way today. It had liberated me and helped me see that just as Jesus is opening the scrolls of the destiny of the universe, Jesus is working on each of the churches to bring it to its recovery. I saw him. He can do it. Here's what I saw. And here's what I saw about the church. And I bet you half those bond servants, just like John, had sort of forgotten the gold of the church and saw more of the trash. Until their vision was realigned to the spiritual reality of the Lord. Well, glorious vision of Jesus. 
It's the center of everything. Including the fact that he held angels in his right hand. Which is part of this whole vision. And how vital for the church to have men and women who have been laid hold of by God. And given a vision and a burden to speak the heart of God to his church. This whole prophetic dimension of the testimony of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Brothers and sisters, it's so wonderful that in all of our assemblies we have some brothers who are able to teach some Bible truth. Able to share the gospel. Able to bring an inspiring message when we break bread together. But we still need angels. Those who can share the Lord's heart. Those who can open up our understanding to what the Lord is doing. To what the Lord's about. To what the Lord sees. And so these angels, just like in the case of Zechariah, you know, these angels are actually only interpreting what the Lord is revealing. And so to Zechariah, the angel had to explain the things that were going on. Uh, The church... As it holds the testimony of Jesus, will have its supply of angels. Now, uh, um, I suppose if John, who was concerned about the loss of the other apostles and perhaps his own soon uh, uh, demise if the Lord didn't come back, must have wondered how this recovery could continue on, how the how the church would be ministered to if he never got out of exile. Who would share the truth to these churches? Now, how wonderful to see that in the Lord's glorious hand, he's laid hold of some messengers. And he will use these messengers to speak with the various churches. Now, of course, answering the question of who these messengers, angels are, angels, messengers, uh, can only get me into trouble. Because, of course, there's great... uh, uh, difference of opinion about it, whether uh, whether some people believe there's actually an angel, you know, not a human, but an angel over each of the seven churches. And frankly, I hope there is an angel over each church. And in every place we meet, I hope there's an angel over us because we need all the help we can get. But I am constrained to believe that these angels being held by the Lord were not the, these uh, non-corporeal angels, but indeed men. We've been laid hold of and indeed dealt with. Actually, some interpret Revelation 2 or 3 as the Lord speaking to the angels of the churches and not to the churches themselves. But I'll leave that aside. I don't go along with that. But these are just men. But they've been laid hold of by God. And they've been laid hold of to, to recover and to speak of the testimony of Jesus in the midst. You know... Um, let me just put it on a broad, broader scale so you can understand what I'm saying. Every great recovery of God down through the centuries in His church, there's been an angel. There's been a man who saw something. And he went through a process where the Lord dealt with him, brought him into some measure of reality regarding the thing that he spoke upon. And then as he spoke, as Luther spoke... The chains fell off. As John Wesley spoke, uh, sanctification became a living reality. As Zinzendorf spoke, the church was baptized in love. 
You see, there was an angel necessary to share the heart of God with these people. And in the midst of that, there was a recovery. Now, when we look at it in that large way, we usually see that there was one man raised up. The truth of the matter is, well, we could say several things. One, if the Lord lays hold of an angel, they, they never think that they're an angel. They're just somebody that the Lord has given a burden to. And second of all, there's actually a lot of other angels in the midst as well. Perhaps just as faithful. Although uh, their names have not been attached to a movement. Whenever you read the history of any great recovery, whether it's the Moravians or, or whether it's the Wesleyans or, or, or whether it's the Brethren, there's some names that immediately rise to the top because these are men who received some special revelation that brought recovery to the church. But the fact of the matter is, there were other brothers, very faithful. The Lord also was showing himself to them and they were sharing as well. These are angels. Now, we, we can't say, is there an angel for one per church? Well, in this case, there's seven angels for the seven churches. I don't think we should hold any fast rule about that. I'm not talking about there being a pastor for every church. That's how some people interpret it. I don't agree with that. But I do believe this. The Lord wants to speak his heart to every church that holds the testimony of Jesus. And we must find the prophetic burden of the Lord in our assembly. Whether it's brothers together, whether it's a few brothers, whether it's a brother. Frankly, throughout my Christian life, and especially after those first ten years, I've had angels come to me in a book, in a tape. And I wouldn't rule that out. I don't know, there may be some small assemblies that don't have any particularly uh, prophetic ministry in their midst. But I tell you what, if you have a heart for God, you'll, 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 you'll find God's burden. I, I really am very thankful for the Christian uh, testimony ministry now, it's called, right? Christian testimony ministry, that website. Wow. You know, whenever I want to really be thinking about something, I'll, I'll, I'll get a T. Austin Sparks. He speaks so slow, I can take a nap between the words. <laughs> But I mean, you know what? Listen, now th that man was an angel. That man is still an angel. He speaks even today because of the, we have access to things like that. Oh, you know, this isn't to raise up angels, but it's just to say that part of that recovery work involves a prophetic ministry. And the Lord laying hold of some who can speak in that prophetic ministry. And oh, how we need to pray that the Lord would raise up those men who can speak with this kind of a heart that brings about recovery. What a wonderful work of recovery. And even with the angels, we have to still say, it is the Lord who sovereignly recovers His church by His own abilities and by His various means. And how do we usually see it happen? There's usually, as I'm going to look at it again on the large scale as it were, four steps to recovery. How can the Lord recover even in these days, maybe very soon, before there is a snatching away of those who are ready for the Lord? Until that time, how can we be faithful? Number one, the Lord is looking for those who see the gold standard and they travail.
for the Lord's revelation, the reality to come to the church. A travailing in prayer for the revival of his people. You know, the church gets to such a low ebb that I, I find my own heart praying for just revival. When I think of New York City and the churches there, Lord, that you would bring revival. Just revival. Revival is where the spiritual water level goes up in the lake. And people begin to see again what holiness is and what righteousness is and what love is and what forgiveness is. And there's a revival among the people of God. It always starts out with the church, you know. And the people get reconciled who've held differences for years. And, 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 and then they find they come and repent of things that have left them in compromise. And they come back to holiness. And the Lord revives. And so out of travail, first step, comes revival, a second step. In the midst of revival is usually when the angels rise up. And in their speaking... They find a new aspect of reality. Or, no, 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 not new. But they recover an aspect of reality in the body of Christ. Something that's been lost. Something that's been obscured. Uh, whether it is, as we say, sanctification or justification by faith. Or the power of the Holy Spirit. They, 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 they lay hold of something that's true. An aspect in the life of God that's true. And there is something recovered. Some specific thing recovered in that period of time. And then the water level goes down, as it inevitably does in a revival. But as the water level goes down, there are some, a remnant, those of vision, those with heart. And when the level was high, they saw something. They saw something pure. They saw something real. And so when the water level goes down, you find these people gathering together as one. Understanding something new about the Lord and also laying hold of all those things in the past. So it's a wonderful thing to read the history of revivals and recovery. Because often recovery is not spoken about. But when you see this true revival comes about, when the waters come down, you find some companies of God's people who've seen something higher, deeper, more wonderful. And often they have experiences quite similar down through the church history of recovering love of the brethren, of recovering prevailing prayer and such matters as that. They get lost in the compromise of church life. So may we pray with travail. May the Lord bring revival. And may the Lord bring his voice in revival to, to show us something. I, I still believe personally two things. I, I'm through, by the way. This is it. One, that there's still more to be recovered. Of course, the problem is we don't know what it is until the light shines on it and we see what it is. And uh, the second thing I believe, just personally, I think it's the time. If the Lord tarries, for another reviving and a recovery of something more. Just when I look over the history of things and see the time sequence of things, there's been some years now, a generation, since the last moving of recovery, at least here that I'm aware of in the United States. And I wonder if the time isn't soon when the Lord will revive his church again. 
But when he revives his church, just don't swim up in the waters and have a good time and let the waters go back down. You see, when the waters go back down, then we think, oh, well, now we're okay. But no, it's when the waters go up high, we realize the Lord wants to deal with foundational things that need to be recovered. May we find ourselves, if he tarries, in a time of reviving. We have so many precious young people who love the Lord more than you old folks and me ever did when we were their age. And I wonder if their cry won't reach up to heaven. And if the Lord won't grant them mercy so that they could say, I have seen the testimony of Jesus over his people. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I've been part of uh, the the life of the uh, church that was golden. I've touched it. I've seen it. Oh, may that be the reality in our midst. But it comes in revelation. It comes when we see As the Lord wants us to see his church bought with a price, being perfected as a bride for the bridegroom. May the Lord help us and give us vision and give us travailing and prevailing prayer that the Lord might show himself again before he gathers us to himself. Lord, that's our prayer as we come to you tonight. We thank you so much for your love for us, for your care for your children. We thank you so much, even for our young people, that, Lord, they're such a blessing to see. Oh, Lord, would you place a burden in their heart, even as you did the young Evan Roberts when he was just a young boy, to pray, Lord, for revival among his people and in his country, that the Lord would bend us and bring about his presence in revival. Lord, we thank you for your precious word. Oh, Lord, help us to see you high and lifted up. Help us to see your church as you define it and not as we. Give us those eyes to see the spiritual reality that we may find ourselves by the Spirit of God being hammered into conformity with that which is your desire. We pray in Jesus' precious name.